it feels sometimes to me as if a sewer pipe has broken and it has began to spill filth upon God-blessed America. It almost seems as if Satan has unleashed all of the artillery of hell against us, and particularly against the home and our family unit. We must keep in mind that the thing called the home and the family was God's first divine institution. Long before God allowed government, before he allowed education, and before he ordained even the church, he ordained the family. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, we find there that God instituted marriage between a man and a woman, and he instructed them there that they too should be one flesh. He instructed them there that they would be joined, and that is that they would be cemented or welded together. And he intended on it staying that way. We can be certain of that because in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 6, Jesus using the same text at his disposal said, What God had joined together, let not man put asunder. And so it was never God's intention that marriages be broken, that families and homes be destroyed, but we know that they are. And that is occurring at alarming rates. And when we ask questions such as why, we can ask those questions and the answers we get immediately are because of Satan, but they include the fact that sometimes we as people, especially as Americans, have lost sight of our moral purity and our ability to keep hold of our sexual morality. And as I say, Satan is helping us to do that. He's doing all that he can to be sure that we lose sight of where we ought to be. But Jesus told us concerning only one of those sins that are involved in that impurity. Speaking of adultery, as we read a moment ago in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, ye have heard it said of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever shall look upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. In his heart. So when I ask myself, or when you were to ask yourself, how would I keep myself from committing such a sin as adultery, which God prohibits and forbids, the answer is found in his text. The answer is found in what Jesus said when he said that when we do it in the heart, it is equal to or as dangerous as, as costly as, doing it in the body. And when you connect that with other things that Jesus would say, such as the fact that out of the abundance of the heart proceedeth the issues of life, when you connect that in turn to what the proverbial writer would say in Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7, when he therefore instructed us that as a man thinketh, so is he, we then can understand that if we would keep ourselves pure, if I would keep myself pure and free from adultery in the heart, I would never once have to worry about committing it in my body. Now that's just the way God says it. That's the way God describes it. It is an absolute guarantee. 
And sure thing, if I want to prevent myself from committing adultery in the body or on the outward senses, I have to first keep myself committing it in the heart. I've got to keep my life pure. Now, the question could then be raised, how do we do that? How do I keep my life pure? How do I keep the sin of adultery out of my heart so I can keep it out of my body? Well, oftentimes when we study God's Word, the best thing we can do is to connect God's Word with God's Word. We can take one passage on the one hand, such as Jesus did in quoting Genesis 3 and verse 24, and we can connect that over to other things that God has said, and we can have a greater understanding. And so because of that, as we discuss a battle we must fight, if Satan has waged this type of war against us, then obviously it's a battle we must fight. We can connect this with Proverbs chapter 5. In Proverbs chapter 5, you're going to notice, at least on the surface, certain words that are being penned. And you realize that the majority of the Proverbs, not all, but the vast majority of the Proverbs that are written, are written by one man, and that is Solomon. And Solomon wrote these things based upon a wisdom, a God-given wisdom, that God had awarded and afforded him because he asked God to do that for him. But when Solomon writes these words, and particularly in the book of Proverbs in this section, chapters 5 and 6, and likewise you could parallel it to one of Solomon's other writings, the book of Ecclesiastes, he specifically pins those words and directs them toward his physical sons. But we don't need to go into that too deep. Because if we get the idea that this is just a father writing to a son and he's saying something casual, or he's giving him good advice or good instruction, we'll miss it all. No, we have to remember that everything that we read from the first verse in the book of Genesis to the very last verse in the book of Revelation, everything that we read, according to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, is inspired of God. That is to say, as we'll read in just a moment, when Solomon speaks to his son, it's only Solomon using the pen of God to speak to all of God's sons. Oh, I'm certain he was worried about the physical sons, but God's worried about all of us as his spiritual children. So don't misunderstand this. When we read these words, this is not the words of Solomon. These are the words of God, and therefore they apply to all of us. But the first thing I want you to notice here in this is that when we prepare ourselves for this battle we must fight, one of the protections we have, one of the things we have at our disposal at least, to protect us from committing adultery either outwardly or inwardly is that we first acquire godly wisdom. That we acquire godly wisdom because therefore that is God's instruction. Notice we're going to begin with these first two verses. Solomon speaking here, of course, on behalf of God, says, And my son, attend unto my wisdom, and bow thine ear to my understanding. Verse 2, That thou mayest regard discretion and that thy lips may keep knowledge. Now what does he instruct his son to do? Therefore, what does God instruct all of us to do? Well, the first phrase there that we read across is that we attend to my, that's God's, wisdom. Now why is that important? Well, if you fail, if I fail within myself to attend to God's wisdom, then automatically what is inferred or implied in that is that I have tuned myself to some other source of wisdom, right? I've gone in another direction. I've gone and sought after it in some other form. Now, concerning this specific sin, and this is only one, all could apply, but concerning the specific sin at hand today, adultery, how would that work out? 
Why, if you and I were to turn today to the sociologists of this world, or the social engineers, and we would ask them, how can I keep myself from adultery? Their reply to that would simply be this. Oh, you should not keep yourself from that because I've known of thousands and millions who have committed this one act, and it really carries with it no real problem. And by the way, it can be pleasurable. It can be fun. And so the social engineers or the sociologists, they do not discourage it at all. You might then turn to the educational system. And you might begin to ask them, how would I keep myself from this sin of adultery? How would I keep myself from that? And as a whole, not all and not in every place, but the educational system says, well, I don't know that we really have to because when you get down to it, we can turn back here into these science books and we can find out we're all created from some primordial ooze and therefore there is really nothing to like and perhaps it's all in our imagination, by the way. And so why not enjoy it? Or... Could we then turn and ask the baby butchers called Planned Parenthood? Could we ask them and say, how do I keep myself from adultery? No, we can't because they'll say you go out and you live it up and love it up and go as far and wide as you want. And when you get into trouble, you show up on our doorstep and we'll fix it all. Could we turn to the Hollywood moguls? Really, these are men who sell dirt for profit who put upon the big screens and even the small screens in our own home all sorts of filth that really teaches us without any certain terms that committing adultery and fornication and other like sins, that that's totally acceptable in society. And by the way, it's the norm. To whom are we going to turn? Well, we can turn to no one save God. He says to read it again, attend unto my wisdom, verse 2, and regard discretion. What does it mean to regard discretion? It means pay attention and think. That's all God asks us to do. To look to His wisdom and when we see it, to pay attention and think. Now why does that really matter? Well, if you connect this, and the context bleed themselves together anyway, but if you connect chapter 5 on into chapter 6, you can notice in chapter 6, for instance, in verse 32, what he says about this, he says, But whoso committeth adultery with a woman, watch it now, he lacketh understanding, and he that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. Now, I'll just simply put that in Mississippi English so that I can understand it. God said, if you commit adultery, you're ignorant. Now, that's not necessarily a terrible term if used properly, but he said you're ignorant, which means you lack understanding. Those who get involved in this sin or any other sin, what truly happens within us is we lack understanding. And so how do I keep myself from it? By acquiring God's wisdom and recognizing His direction. But not only can I be urged to stay away from this sin and others, by noticing God's direction, I have to be well aware, well aware of Satan's deception. Now this falls in the next several verses. Verse 3 goes forward to speak of Satan's deception, which he uses, for example, here a woman. And by the way, I would suppose if Solomon were writing to daughters, he would speak of the man from this perspective. But it begins here in verse 3 and says, For the lips of a strange woman are as drops of honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end, watch it, but her end is bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a two-edged sword, and her feet go down to death, for her steps take hold on hell. And I really like this part, if you can like something. He says, Thou shouldest ponder the path of life, 
for her ways are movable and thou canst, watch it, not know them. Now, is he speaking of every woman? No. If this were reversed and it could easily could be, would he be speaking of every man? No. He said these are those who are strange, meaning these are those who are going against or are much different than God would have them to be. Now, what does he tell us about this deception? Well, we ought to compare this, really, and we could compare similar passages to it likewise to going fishing. If you go fishing, there are three things that a good fisherman will intend to do. The first one has to do with a good fisherman who would take himself to entice, right? Everyone who goes fishing tries to use the right bait, and that bait was uh, specific to a certain type of fish, and at the same time it's specific to a certain time of day or a certain season of the year. So he'd use enticement. Every good fisherman likewise would use entrapment because it does no good to drop a line in the water that has bait on it if there's no hook there to catch them. That's of no, no joy, no pleasure, no benefit. And then every good fisherman ultimately wants to enslave that fish and draw him in to their own possession to make them a property of his. You say, what does this have to do with fishing? It's right here. Because he tells us a strange woman uses similar tactics, Satan uses similar tactics through him or her, and says, to begin with that first phrase, her lips are as a drop of honeycomb. What does that mean? Well, it has to do with enticement. It has to do with a strange woman and how she looks, how she smells, how she feels, how she tastes, whatever it is. And she entices. It's basically in our day and time what we would call the come hither. Be a part of me. But that breaks people down. That causes men and women to commit adultery. Then it goes to the next level. And the level that we mentioned there was not the idea of enticement so much it was the idea of entrapment. Now that's found in the next phrase of verse 3 which goes on to say, and her mouth is smoother than oil. Now what this has to do with here is not the frivolity or the fun, it has to do with flattery. How many times have you been in, I've been in, whomever it is, have we been in a position where without thinking whatsoever we look to someone outside of our spouse that is of the opposite sex and we flirt? Maybe with or without intention. Maybe he hadn't done that. Lord willing, we haven't. So maybe we have been flirted with by the opposite sex. That's what this woman does. And he calls her strange. He calls her unlike what I would have her to be. Now, why would we do that? Well, it's dangerous. Because when one is enticed, one can be entrapped, and then eventually one will be enslaved. Now, he said it here in the text. You read it again. He says, but her end, where she brings us to at least, but her end as, as bitter as wormwood, he goes on to, to be sure we understand it, to say that her feet go down to death and take hold the steps of hell. So what's the problem? If I refuse to acquire godly wisdom and therefore I commit this sin or any other, I have refused God's direction and taken hold of Satan's deception. But at the same time, that's what keeps me from those things. Acquiring godly wisdom through God's direction and knowing Satan's deception. But there's much more to this text. You can also see in this, not only can I acquire godly wisdom or his instruction, 
and can keep myself from this sin. You can go forward in a little bit more in verse number 6. He says, Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life, her ways are immovable, thou canst not know them. Verse 7, And hear me now therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Watch the key here coming up in verse 8. And remove thy way from her, and come not nigh unto the door. What's he saying? Well, he's telling us here, not only must we acquire godly wisdom, but we acknowledge dangerous situations. We've got to know there are dangers out there. Now, immediately in this, I like to think in my mind at least, you know, there are no dangers for me because there is no real potential for me falling. I might turn to my wife as I could, and I can say our numbers together, and some of you much longer, much shorter, but our numbers together so far as years are of upwards of 13 years, and therefore we've gone this long without committing this act, without taking part in this sin, so therefore we're okay. But he tells us here, he tells us here that we have to avoid those dangerous situations. Now we do that in two ways. We can easily do that by first accepting God's divine call. His call is what? Don't get near her door. Now I'm afraid in the world in which we live, if you were to sit down with too many, and I say too many because one is too many, but if we were to sit down with one quote-unquote Christian counselor or one quote-unquote gospel preacher, I'm not even including the world in this, but if we were to sit down with them and ask them or propose a situation and say, I have encountered this man or I have encountered this woman and they have set forth to do the things that were described, they have enticed, they have in turn entrapped and they would like to enslave me, what should I do? Some of those men today without God's Word in sight would say, well, what you need to do is sit down and talk it out and what you need to do is pray about it. Does that sound right? Is that what Joseph did? When Joseph found himself in the home of Potiphar's wife alone, and after day after day after day she had enticed him, she had flirted with him, she had lusted after him, and she finally got a hold of his coat, what did he do? Did he sit down and discuss it? Friends, this is not a sin that we fight. It's one that we flee on every occasion. The only way to keep myself from this sin, and for that matter any other, is to get away from it. I heard someone say on one occasion, the best pattern for escape is the king's highway and two swift feet. Just run. Get away from it. Now that instruction is clear. Because here he says, don't get near her door. And in other passages, such as 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 2, we're told there clearly to take heed lest we fall. What does that imply? We can fall. That includes all of us. When we tie that in turn to 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22, we find there Paul instructing Timothy clearly to flee youthful lust. That's what God wants us to do. To run. To escape. Therefore, can I and should I do that? Absolutely. So when you consider this pattern here that is set forth in the text, it begins there with verse 8, in that we avoid dangerous situations by accepting the call of God. But the thing that really helps me is when I admit the deadly consequences. When I admit the deadly consequences. Now, they begin in verse 9. And the list here, I'll admit to you, there's about five, maybe six or seven, but I've chosen five of these that are most clear in the text. He begins here in verse 9 speaking of that and says, Lest thou, now this is someone who's removed himself, kept away from the door, lest thou give thine honor unto others, and lest thy years unto the cruel watch it. 
lest strangers be filled with thy wealth and thy labors be in the house of a stranger. What does that mean? He tells us that one of the deadly consequences found here is something I'm going to call dissipation. When I fall into the pit of sin, when I commit the sin of adultery in particular, I have began to dissipate my life. It will cost you. You know, Satan promises high wages, but he often pays us in counterfeit bills. It will cost you. Now, the man here drawn in the picture, a figurative person at least, is one who he says when this occurs, you basically turn your wealth, you turn your things over to strangers. Has that ever happened? Uh, you can shake or nod, but I'd encourage you to nod. Because I have seen numerous men or women, I can think of one man in my mind in particular, whom I went to school with, high school I mean, rose up through the ranks, an intelligent young man, seemingly went on to college, was making his way in the business world. Matter of fact, I would suppose, out of all the people my age, that I knew he may have been the most wealthy and had the most things of anybody I've ever known. He lived in a big house, he had the fast cars, he had the wife who you would assume was some kind of supermodel or whatever. But I'll tell you what he did. He committed adultery and he lost every single bit of that. It causes dissipation. It causes us to lose the God-given blessings sometimes even that God has afforded us. But not only is there dissipation, keep reading forward in this, you find out in verse 11, he says, And thou mourn at the last, watch it, when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. Not only does it cause dissipation then, it causes disease. This is speaking of physical ailments or illnesses. Now let's only use one. Think about AIDS in our society. We don't hear so much about it anymore because they found a process to, to maybe slow it down or maybe to treat it but never to cure it. You think about that one disease, AIDS. Now, how is it spread? Well, we are told oftentimes it is spread through sexual contact. There are other ways, but generally that's the rule. We know that. Scientists have proved it. But when you really think about it, we have to know that AIDS is something that should not and ought not be in our world, right? It ought not be here. Friends, I would give my, uh, my life, I suppose, if I would have the opportunity to stand on CBS and NBC and, and all the major networks, CNN, C-SPAN, to stand before the entirety of the world and tell them I have the answer to the AIDS virus. I've got it. You know what it is? Live by this book. If every man and woman upon the face of this earth would live by this book. You say, well, AIDS has already infected the world. And there are many who are contracting it from other means. Changing of, of fluids such as during a blood transfusion or stuff. Well, I agree with that. But if at some point in time every man and or woman on the face of this earth would start living by this book, that disease would disappear. That's the answer. And I would to God the world would find it. But not only does it bring dissipation, does this one sin adultery bring disease? I'll tell you something else about it eventually, and I hope and pray this would be the case to any involved. It would bring disappointment. Because he goes on to tell us in verse 12 and 13, and he says, How have I hated instruction, and my heart despised reproof, 
and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to them that instructed me. What is he saying? He's picturing a man here now who's already been involved in it. Dissipation has occurred. Disease has come upon him. And now he says, why didn't I listen? And there's one modern translation I don't trust very much, but I'll tell you what, that's exactly how they translate this verse. Why didn't I listen? I know the odds and I know the matters of statistics that are out there and I've rechecked over the last several days even some of the statistics involving different things whether it be divorce and marriage versus adultery and at least the accused adultery that ends some of those marriages and such. And I've come to conclude that it's not too far from this audience whether it be in the audience whether it be out by the way of the internet or whatever I will speak to someone on some occasion on some day concerning this topic and they'll look back so many years from now and say, why didn't I listen? Why didn't I hear it? And is that to say they ought to say, why didn't I listen to Jim Merle? No. Why didn't I listen back to verse 1 to attend unto the wisdom of God? That's all it says. And so it brings disappointment. But I'll tell you something else about it. You keep reading a little bit farther in this, verse 14, and I was almost evil in all the midst of the congregation and the assembly. It not only brings disappointment, it brings disgrace. It brings disgrace. He says there'll come a point when it will be known in all the congregation, in all the assembly. And he says, is he speaking of the Lord's church? Well, I would assume not, considering the Lord's church had not been implemented at the time of his writing. But he is considering the congregation of God's people, which are his faithful ones. And he says it'll bring disgrace. Now, I don't know how many in my life I have known, I have sat down and spoken with, and really the reason why they sat down to talk, the reason why they sit down to discuss or to at least study their sin is because they've gotten to a point and they say, hey, I've got people who found out about it and, and I'm in a tight now. Statistics have shown on, on certain levels at least that when the sin of adultery is committed, which you would assume the act obviously takes place between two people, that it affects two people. Statistics show it affects at least 50. It's not hard to get to that number when you consider two people who both had parents and grandparents who could potentially have children, who would have children, who would have cousins and aunts and uncles and acquaintances and friends. It brings disgrace. But not only does it bring disgrace, something more dangerous is that it brings dominion. Verse 22, we've got to skip down a little bit for time's sake. Verse 22 says in this, And his iniquity shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be watched holden with the cords of his own sin. His own sin. What did he say? He said there will be a time and there will be a point when your sin itself will wrap you up and will hold you within its grasp. Now, can we escape sin? Oh, yes, we can. There is always opportunities for us. John tells us in 1 John 1, tells us that it is possible that God will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can escape. But how long will it last? Well, you, we would hope it would last for life. But I, I know of a, 
an acquaintance, I shouldn't call him a friend, he, he never was that, but an acquaintance at least, who got involved in this particular sin, this particular action. And I know with every ounce of my heart, when he sat down to discuss it with the person whom he did, that they sat there and he with tears flowing down the sides of his cheeks, he begged and pleaded for some way out. He begged and pleaded for some way of forgiveness. And, and he found it because he was a child of God's and therefore in that he sat down, he prayed to God for forgiveness and he actually repented for a time. But the problem is he went back because it had dominion over him. But not only does it bring dominion, likewise you can see in the very next verse it brings death. He says, and he shall die without instruction and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. He shall die without instruction. Again, whose instruction? The good advice of a parent, the good advice of a preacher, a Bible class teacher, the good advice of a friend? No, because those individuals have no good advice save God's Word. Attend, my son, unto my wisdom. Take thyself to regard with discretion and to keep knowledge. God's knowledge. And so if I should keep myself from spiritual adultery, adultery within the heart, which could in turn keep myself from adultery within the body, which would have me to preparing myself to fight in the battle that we must fight, I must acquire godly wisdom. I must avoid dangerous situations. And then something else that's here in the text revealed so clearly is that I likewise must accept God's best. What's God's intention? Obviously God's intention according to Matthew chapter 5, 27 and 30 is that we not be involved in these things. But what is His specific intention for us? Well, notice it. It's found here in the text. Go to verse 18. He tells us very clearly that marriage itself ought to be a lasting marriage. It's permanent. You say, oh, well, I know of those who have been divorced. Well, it is possible to be divorced for any man in our country, and it is actually possible, don't get me wrong, this is the discussion from next week because we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. It's possible to be divorced and to be right still in the sight of God. But that doesn't imply that was God's intention because verse 18 says it ought to be a lasting marriage. He says, let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice. Watch it with the wife of thy youth. What does he mean? Keep her. What does he mean? Keep him. Hold on to him. And stay with him. He wants it to be lasting. But not only does he want it to be lasting, you, you might turn and say, well, I've known them people who've been married for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but they've never been happy. Oh, they've survived. They've stuck it out for the kids. Or maybe they're godly people and they've always thought in their mind, you know, there's really no reason for divorce, so we'll just live our separate lives and we'll go our separate ways, but we'll cohabitate. He wants it to be loving. Not only a, a, a lasting marriage, but a loving marriage. Notice what's said there in the next couple of verses. Verse 19, And let her be as the loving hind of a pleasant roe. Now, a roe is a deer, and he just talked about the beautiful silhouette of a deer. 
Now, whether you're a hunter or not, most people would admit that when you see a deer, especially a doe, out in the field, saying that's just a beautiful silhouette. He says, let it be as the hind of a roe. He goes on to say something I'll skip for our children's sake. But then he says, let her satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. He intended on it being lasting, but he intended on it being loving, and the truth is, he intended on it being liberating. So you take verse 22 and you read it again, and then you turn it upside down, put it on his head. He says, His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holding of his own cords of his sin. Now, who is that? That's the guilty party. That is the individual who commits this act. If you take one who intended on their marriage being lasting and who continues in their marriage being loving, then you have a person who can allow their marriage, and God would have it to be that way, intended on it, being liberating. Now that's not the way that many often think. Friends, I thank God that I was able to go to the marriage altar. I hate to call it an altar, but that's the term that everyone understands, a virgin. I thank God for that. But I had to do that by knowing what God intended for marriage to be. But more times than not, our young people and adults today get in this standard They say, well, if I do that now, if I intend on staying pure, then after I get married, if I intend on staying monogamous and staying in one relationship and one only, then then I'm missing out on something, folks. Young people older, we're not missing out. We're standing in. We're standing in what God would intend us to do. A friend of mine has said this, and... And I've just loved it since he said it. He said, you can eat your cake today, but be sure you'll have a crummy tomorrow. Now that's what happens when adultery or sin, we can generalize too, but when adultery enters into our lives. We've had our cake, so we think. But then when we have a crummy tomorrow, we're questioning that. It's a liberating thing. Our teenagers today sometimes speak of going all the way. Friends, that's the only thing they haven't done is gone all the way because to go all the way is to be married the way that God intended it to be. You have heard it said of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever shall look upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. If I will keep my heart pure, I therefore will keep my body pure, and I can keep my actions pure. And my heart can be made pure when I acquire godly wisdom, when I then in turn avoid dangerous situations, and when I accept God's best. Now, what is God's best? Well, God's best for marriage was just that. Lasting, loving, and liberating. What's God's best for the person who's not obeyed God? What's His best for someone who has never obeyed the gospel? His best was His Son. And His Son was given for all. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. It would be because you have not taken hold of Jesus, the Son of God, who shed His blood for you. 
You can do that. You can acquire God's best. You can take hold and accept God's best as yours by coming to Him today. How would we do that specifically? Well, God would command us. Even God in a body on earth, Jesus would tell us that we must believe on Him. Jesus Himself would command of us that we all would have to repent, that we would have to repent or else we would perish like anyone who lived their life any way that they would have it to be lived. He commanded upon us that we confess His name, not just on one occasion, certainly we must, with our mouths, but also in our lives. But more importantly than that, those things take us all the way to the point of salvation, but do not take us inside the door. We come inside through baptism. You're here today and you're not a child of God's. It would be because you've not obeyed His will, but it's available. It's open to you. Accept God's best. Acquire God's best. Take hold of it through baptism today. He can wash away your sins. If you're here and you're a member of His church, you're a member of His kingdom, you're a part of His fold, His family, but for whatever reason you've fallen away, especially if it be these sins such as disgust, won't you come home while together we stand and as we sing?